Hi, this is Alan K. Rohde, author and film historian, and you are listening to Tim Millard's podcast, The Extras. Hello and welcome to The Extras, where we take you behind the scenes of your favorite TV shows, movies, and animation, and they're released on digital, DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K, or your favorite streaming site. I'm Tim Millard, your host. In our last podcast, George Feltenstein joined me for a review of 3 of the July Blu-ray releases from the Warner Archive. Best Picture Oscar winners, The Broadway Melody from 1929 and Cimarron from 1931. We also discussed the MGM musical comedy, Dewberry Was a Lady from 1943, starring Lucille Ball, Red Skelton, and Gene Kelly. In part two, we'll review four more Blu-ray releases, all from the 1950s. Well, the next film... Uh, we're jumping into the fifties, George. And that's the last time I saw Paris. And I really enjoyed this film. I thought, wow, what an emotional love story drama. And I just thought it had great performances from Elizabeth Taylor and Van Johnson and, and, and everybody, Walter Pigeon, Donna Reed. I really enjoyed this movie. And this is one of the very last films to be shot in the Technicolor process it was released in 1954. By that time, the industry was pretty much switching over to Eastman Color camera negative, and there were very few three strip Technicolor films being made. This was, I think, one of the last three that MGM did in 1954, and the location photography is very impressive. But also, I think what's really key is Elizabeth Taylor was 21 when she made this film and had been a movie star for 11 years. Wow. Um, You know, if you go back to Lassie Come Home in 1943, but this film was like a first opportunity for her to get a meaty role and sink her chops into it. And it's based on a work by F. Scott Fitzgerald, Babylon Revisited. And the theme of the title song, The Last Time I Saw Paris, which was actually first brought to the public about 13 years before when it was featured in an MGM movie called Lady Be Good, and Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein II wrote that song after Paris fell to the Nazis. And the way it's used as a consistent underscoring theme uh, really contributes greatly to the, the charm of the love story. And you're right, everybody is really given moving performances And a shout out to the director, Richard Brooks, who's, I think, terribly underrated and underappreciated as a director. He made some really magnificent films, and many of them are available from the Warner Archive on Blu-ray, like Cat on the Hot Tin Roof and Sweet Bird of Youth. He's really very, very talented. Uh, amazing filmmaker and his body of work speaks for itself. But um, there is so much to be impressed by with this film, but 
I think the fact that we're finally seeing it restored because people have been looking at awful versions of it for years and to have it in the proper aspect ratio and restored, it just changes your experience. It has to. Yeah. And again, we added some short entertainment pieces of the period to add to the experience of it. And overall, we're very delighted. And I know a lot of the Elizabeth Taylor fans, of which there are many, were particularly excited about this release. So we're very, very happy to have brought it forth in yeah. its proper presentation. It, it looks great. I mean, and, and the fact that they shot this on location in Paris lets you really enjoy and immerse yourself in the city. And there were some shots in there, which I just, I was kind of mind boggling. I thought to see like when they, you know, this isn't really giving anything away from a plot point, but like when they're at the Arc de Triomphe and they're relighting it, the city for the first time, I'm like, how did they redo, redo that scene? And then I don't know if they used footage from some of the actual end of the European conflict in there of, of uh, the people celebrating everything and then mixed it in with some of the live action. But I thought it was very seamless and it looked terrific. I've really enjoyed just immersing myself in that locale in Paris for the storyline. And it was written by the Epstein brothers who also wrote Casablanca. And it's got that flavor, right? Of the international, the love, the bit of tragedy, bittersweet. It's got all that mixed in, which I'm a sucker for. And I really enjoyed it for that reason. And, uh, you know, you know, when I was younger, we lived in Europe as well. So I don't know. I just, I just liked all of the elements that are part of this film. And Elizabeth Taylor, like you said, you kidding me? She's 21? Because she really, she has to play a role that ages, right? Right. Um, and she does a terrific job. And uh, I don't know, I, I thought it was really great. I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend this. And then the extras on there are, are, are just a fun little addition as well. So I, I, I'm so glad you released this film. So am I. And uh, that takes us to the next year, uh, 1955. And over here at Warner Brothers, when, in fact, I really should be giving credit to over there, meaning across the sea, because Land of the Pharaohs, directed by the great Howard Hawks, released in 1955 for Warner Brothers, was shot on location in Egypt. And it is really a remarkable achievement because they had a massive cast, massive amount of extras. This was one of those cinemascope, big screen, historical epics that was designed to lure people away from their little 19-inch televisions, black and white, at home, and get them into the movie theater for spectacle. Right. And not only do you get spectacle, but you also get Joan Collins, who gives a just unforgettable performance uh, in this movie. This is really, I believe this was her first American film. And she made quite the impression on the American movie going public. Right. And it just shows the versatility of Howard Hawks. I always find Howard Hawks fascinating because he could make screwball comedies, you know, like bringing up baby and 
musicals like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and westerns like Rio Bravo and war films like Air Force. He could do anything. And he's one of my very favorite directors. And I know that this film has a huge cult following among cineasts. And one of its biggest supporters is Martin Scorsese, and he's always saying the praises of this film. And in fact, this is one of the 10 Warner Brothers films that was restored with the promotional support of the Film Foundation. Restoration was done at MPI, by MPI, but the Film Foundation was integrally involved in those 10 films being part of our 100th anniversary celebration. And to have this where the Warner color, which we've talked about, is so problematic, the colors burst off the screen and it looks better than it ever has. And the sound with 5.1 is really, really impressive. And the whole presentation is just luscious. I think that's the best word to describe it. We're very proud of it. It's amazing those shots with all of those extras and all of those panoramas of um, the desert and, and their building of the the pyramids. I mean, it's something to see in this new, you know, restoration that you've done for this, along with the film foundation. I mean, anybody who is a fan of this film, there's just really no nothing else to say other than you need to get this Blu-ray to see it in the way that it was intended to be seen. Well, and this was supposed to be uh, released last month, and we ran into a little bit of a delay because we had a problem here that was the same as we had with Angel Face, where because we were coming off the original negative, there were more frames in the negative scattered throughout the film than the secondary elements that were used to make the prior standard definition transfers. And here you have the rare opportunity of hearing the great late Peter Bogdanovich, amazing film director in his own right, but also a film historian and really uh, critically involved in the early days of film history uh, being looked at from a more modern lens as he wrote about in the 60s before he started directing. And he also interviewed his favorite directors and he interviewed Howard Hawks and some of his interview footage with Howard Hawks, not footage, but audio recordings, I should say, are part of the commentary. And so the way these commentaries were put together for the DVDs They're not separate. So the only way we could solve this was to have the standard definition source with the commentary in the special features. So I know that comes across as a little weird, but it was the only way we could save the commentary. There was really, uh, it would have been heartbreaking to not continue that. We really don't like having something on the prior release that isn't carried over as a legacy bonus feature. So it delayed the release a little bit, but we were able to save it. 
And hopefully this won't happen again to us, but twice within like the same month, you know, we did get Angel Face out for June, but uh, Land of the Pharaohs got a little delayed, but I think it was ultimately worth it. And uh, I've just gotten a lot of, I've been reading the reviews, people are really enjoying the disc and that's very gratifying. Yeah. And the, the acting, you know, with Jack Hawkins and June Collins is really fun. So that it has that kind of drama that's uh, of this pharaoh who is really, uh, you know, building these pyramids for his own tomb for all of this wealth and everything. And so the plot itself, too, to go back to the story a little bit, is uh, is really fun. That's woven through uh, while you get all these great, great, great epic shots and of the building of the actual pyramids and things of that nature. So it's really fun. I mean, I, I think this is a a great package as well. Absolutely. And then the other thing is the the music from uh, Dimitri Tiomkin really is uh, a great part of this film as well. A lot of people, I think, would want to have this movie just for the score because it's one of the times, not unlike when we talked about The Old Man in the Sea last month, uh, Tiomkin's score is as much a character in the film for Land of the Pharaohs as he was with the Old Man in the Sea. His work was in a class by itself. It's not that he was better than anybody else. He was unique. But he's certainly one of our great classic era film composers. And uh, I find his work fascinating. And his contribution to a film means so much. And certainly does here. And it's something we're very proud of. Well, the next uh, film, Helen of Troy, came out just a year later, George. I think that was a, a real time for the sword and sandal type uh, epics that were being made. I think, what, Ten Commandments came out in 56 as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of fun. I, I'm, uh, I was a literature major when I was in college, so I know this story very well. And I thought that it was a very, very well done movie. And it just, it hits all of the notes of the story and has some really great performances and great visuals. And and this was directed by Robert Wise. I mean, he had already established his ability as a director, but he didn't yet have the success he would have just a few years down the road with films like West Side Story and The Sound of Music and The Sand Pebbles. But he was already, in many people's view, a fine director. And uh, you've got a cast of uh, Rosanna Podesta and Jacques Cernas, who Warner Brothers in the United States called Jack. Only in the U.S. do you see him build as Jack and not Jacques. But uh, they're really good in the movie. And again, it is a spectacle. It is in CinemaScope. It does look better than it ever has before. And it benefits again from a 5-1 audio track that has power. And it is irresistible fun. One of the things that's super fun about this disc is that we have three different excerpts from the Warner Brothers Presents television series. And Warner Brothers Presents was an anthology series 
that had three separate shows in rotation, an adaptation of Casablanca uh, starring Charles McGraw, an adaptation of King's Row based on the film uh, that Ronald Reagan and Ann Sheridan were in. And then there was a Western starring Clint Walker called Cheyenne. It was not based on the 1947 movie of the same title, just used the same title. But Cheyenne Bodie was the breakout star from that rotating series and went on for six more seasons. And what each one of those episodes would do was really Warner Brothers' first venture into television, and they did it with ABC. And right before the last 10 minutes of each hour-long episode, they would take like a six-minute segment for Gig Young to act as a host to take people behind the camera for films that Warner Brothers was producing at the time. And we have three behind-the-camera sequences promoting Helen of Troy on this disc. And one of them is really interesting because it kind of has nothing to do with Helen of Troy. They use it sort of as a, re- a reason to show off old Vitaphone equipment, yeah. which I thought was a kind of specious connection. But the fun part of it is that nobody gets to see that series anymore. And this is like a rare chunk of it. And there is still hope that we can free up the whole thing at some point, because I think it would be an important part of both the company's history and television history. But in the meantime, we have these little excerpts and we've used them for other films. And I hope we get to use more of them in the future and present the shows in their entirety. But uh, you do get a little backstage behind the scenes aspect of Helen of Troy as well as the way the studio very ingeniously wove other things into these little sequences and made them quite compelling. So they're on the disc as well. And uh, it adds to the fun. Yeah. And I'm assuming that one of the reasons why they did these segments to push this film and to promote this film is because it was a big gamble, wasn't it, for the studio? Huge. Yeah, Yeah. these were big budget movies, and the studio was teeter-tottering. You know, the whole industry was, because television had taken such a huge bite out of the audiences, and the government's divorcement decree, which forced the studios to sell their theaters, it was like a one-two punch that nearly destroyed the studio's completely. And one of the ways Warner Brothers was able to survive was by going into full tilt television production and supplying ABC. So to see these big screen epics that they were producing to try to draw people away from the television represents the conflict of the time. The byproduct of which is we as historians and viewers and audiences can enjoy the films and with a beautiful blu-ray and a restoration helen of troy was also another title that was restored at mpi with the promotional support of the film foundation so we're very grateful 
for their help in saluting our 100th with a variety of different kinds of films. And uh, I know that we had a, a little bit of interest bubble up for Helen of Troy. I'm saying either 19 or 20 years ago when Brad Pitt's Troy movie came out, Wolfgang Peterson's film. Right. And suddenly people were asking for Helen of Troy. But the way it looked then on DVD compared to the way it looks now with this new 4K scan off the camera negative and with the color and audio fully restored, it's really a knockout. Yeah. And then you have a couple other um, extras I'll just mention, and that's the Napoleon Bunny part and the theatrical trailer, which uh, were yes. great to have as well. Yes. And any time we can put Looney Tunes of the and Merry Melodies of the era uh, of the year, specifically what you would have experienced in the movie theater. It's like a miniature version of when we do the full tilt Warner night, the movies. And I just think it adds a lot more to the experience of just having a movie on a disc. And it brings you back to what it would have been like if you were seeing this movie in 1956 you very likely would have seen a 1956 cartoon with it. So speaking of 1956, that is the year of release also of the last film we're going to talk about today, which is kind of the antithesis of a big budget color cinemascope uh, stereophonic epic. And this is a very impressive and exciting tightly made Western with one of the most underrated leading men, I think, in from Hollywood's golden age and thereafter. Glenn Ford stars in The Fastest Gun Alive, along with Gene Crane, and a very young Russ Tamblin. I think this is a terrific little Western. It was shot in black and white. It was shot in widescreen. It did not have stereophonic sound. There was a cheap process called perspective sound that moved mono optical audio around the theater using tones. But it was, despite what certain people say, it was fake stereo. It was not real. And this is an authentic, clear mono track. And the presentation, again, it's a scan off the camera negative. And the benefits are quite remarkable because I've never seen this film look that good. The film never looked bad, but now it looks fantastic. And it's a really exciting, very, very economically made and well-written Western with the traditional tropes of a 1950s Western. But Glenn Ford could be the lead in any kind of movie and pull it off. I've seen him in romantic comedies, in dramas that are deeply serious, gangster films, but westerns. He had a special relationship with western characters. He worked a lot at MGM, also was under contract to Columbia before that, and he kind of teeter-tottered around various other studios, but the man is just not well-remembered enough for the great work he did on the screen. One of the things I also like about this film is 
the bad guy is played by Broderick Crawford, and he's always terrific in everything. Right. And then, as I mentioned before, Russ Hamblin, coming off the heels of being in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, you know, in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, three of the brothers were couldn't dance. And uh, Howard Keel was one of them. Jeff Richards was another one. And Russ Hamblin wasn't a dancer. But what he was was a tumbler. And he was able to learn how to move and dance in Seven Brides so well that they managed to find a little dance sequence in this movie for him, which is just cute and charming. And, you know, so many people are fond of him. He's had such a long career. Thankfully, he's still very much with us and very active. And he was at the TCM Film Festival recently. People know him from being Riff and West Side Story. People also know him from Twin Peaks. You know, he's had this amazing career. But MGM was his home for many years. You know, he's the little brother and father of the bride. We watched him grow up from Rusty Tamblin to Russ Tamblin to being in Son of a Gunfighter, which is a spaghetti western in the 60s. He's had an amazing career. Yeah. But uh, he just adds to the entertainment value of this film. I really enjoyed this Western, George, and uh, I, I enjoy Westerns a lot. This one, Glenn Ford, as you mentioned, does a terrific performance. And there's a good story here as well. We're, we don't want to give anything away, but it's got uh, a slow build. And they've got that little Russ Tamblin sequence in there to, to bring a little lightness and then the rest of the story just builds and builds and builds to this very, very interesting, fun uh, ending that um, that's very dramatic and and so it's a terrific way to to finish out that that western. But Glenn Ford, I mean, what can you say? I, you, you've said it, it all here. He just deserves uh, so much more credit for playing. Well, there are many more of his excellent films. Mostly on the Warner Brothers side, but a couple on the RKO side. And I can think of at least one on the Warner Brothers side that I would love to bring to Blu-ray. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, the fans out there would like to see those as well. And we do have some, but not enough. So we're, we're always keeping our eye out for more Glenn Ford. And, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches in our library because there's so much great stuff to choose from and it's just what can be ready when and how can we get to the public to look the best that it can be and sound the best that it can be that makes july a very exciting month yeah and and there are a couple of extras uh on that release um yes there are the two tom and jerry cartoons blue cat blues and downbeat bear and they're very different also and uh very much representative of the change that was going on in animation. And they're in high definition and they look terrific. And I think it just wraps it up for a very nifty 1956 Blu-ray release. And it's very pleasing to have such a diverse group of entertaining films that people can enjoy and add to their collections. There's something here for everyone. Yeah, yeah. What a what a range of different uh, sword and sandal, Western, 20s, 30s, you know, various decades, various genres. So it's a terrific month, and I really enjoyed these movies. So 
Well, as always, thanks for coming on and giving us a review and giving us a background. And it's always fun for uh, you and I to kind of chit chat and give our impressions and, and personal opinions about these films. Well, I'm excited when I get to hear what you think after you've seen them. Yeah. You know, because one of the things I'm working on these releases is you spend so much time with the film and making sure everything is absolutely the best that it can be that you end up watching certain sequences or the whole thing 10, 20 times. And the real fun is after you've completed a project and it is, it's been set out to see and, you know, for all the people to own and love and to hear the response, but then to revisit it maybe six months or a year later and look at it again, it's doubly gratifying. Because when you're in the thick of it, it's overwhelming. Right. And we have to make sure every detail is correct. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next time we get together to talk about the August releases, because that's an equally diverse group. Yes. Yes, for sure. For sure. That's a great lineup as well. This is part two of our July Blu-ray reviews from the Warner Archive. If you missed it, be sure and listen to part one, where we review the Academy Award-winning films The Broadway Melody from 1929 and Cimarron from 1931. We also reviewed the Technicolor comedy DeBerry Was a Lady from 1943, starring Lucille Ball, Red Skelton, and Gene Kelly. For those of you interested in ordering the films we discussed today, there are links in the podcast show notes and on our website at www.theextras.tv. So be sure and check those out. If you're on social media, be sure and follow the show to stay up to date on our upcoming guests and to be a part of our community. And you're invited to our Facebook group for fans of Warner Archive films called the Warner Archive and Warner Brothers Catalog Group. And you can find that link either on the Facebook page or in the show notes. And for our long-term listeners, don't forget to follow and leave us a review at iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Until next time, you've been listening to Tim Millard. Stay Slightly Obsessed. Hi, this is Tim Millard, host of the Extras Podcast. And I wanted to let you know that we have a new private Facebook group For fans of the Warner Archive and Warner Brothers Catalog physical media releases. So if that interests you, you can find the link on our Facebook page or look for the link in the podcast show notes.